Here's Neymar now, Cavani is there. And Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Calou for Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tobac. Kylian Mbappé wraps it up. Good day and welcome, welcome to the latest edition of Le Bourgeois, which today has a distinct Australian twang to it. We've got a fair dinkum beauty of a podcast as we talk about and hear from the Aussies who have made their mark on French football. And we start, as is now tradition, on Le Bourgeois with a poem from our multi-talented Ligue 1 journalist, David Crossan. Over to you, Dave. This poem, Matthew, is called Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. They came from a land down under, and if French football they didn't rip asunder, they certainly played their part, known for competing with great heart. They came here with backpacks, not ball and chain. Far from the Australian sun, they played in the French rain. Now, back in the 80s, Aussie sportsmen were hairy. Alan Border was a hero to Christian Vieri. What about Kylie? Do you rate her? Or are you more of a fan? of Robbie Slater. To a Frenchman, an egg is always an earth. The Aussie boys were here for more than just the surf. Stajowski was at Lille when he was 22. For too long, I was sniffy and took the view that the rules were Australian footballers had mullets, the round ball to them as difficult as these couplets. Growing up in England meant neighbours and home and away. Now I have to admit these socceroos can play. With the Australian footballers, our Robbie is in cahoots He's done very well since coming to Europe with just his cowboy boots. He can tell you great stories of Farina and Zelic, but on Aussie's World Cup defeat to France, he might dwell, which is kind of annoying when all you expect him to say is slip another shrimp on the barbie. Good day. <laughs> Beautiful. Bravo, man. Dave. Another, very good. Another very good effort from you. I thought this would be you know, testing your abilities really to, to the full, but you found some, some fantastic links there. Let's, uh, let, let's welcome um, our other guests. We have uh, our regular Robbie Thompson, who uh, will be exaggerating his, his Aussie twang because he has lost it a bit over the last two, two decades, but Daniel Garb hasn't. And uh, Daniel joins us from Sydney. How are you doing? Going very well. I'm very excited to do this amongst you fine gents. I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, thanks for having me on. And I love the start, love the opening. Oh, wow, that's great. That's great that you haven't taken offence and, um, and, and you're staying with us. It's fantastic to have you. I, I had the pleasure of working with, uh, with Daniel at the World Cup in Russia a couple of years ago. I know that Robbie um, has worked with Daniel in the past at, at, at Fox Sports. Um, so great to have some Australian knowledge. You know, let's be honest, there haven't been a, a huge number of Australians over in France. And... Um, you know, we'd like we'd like a few more of you to come over and, and, and play in Liga. I think it's fair to say the first guy to have a big impact, the first Australian to have a big impact in France was Robbie Slater, and he became a cult hero at Lens. Um, he joined Lens in, in 1990, didn't really know what he was getting himself in for and was uh, very pleasantly surprised when he saw the passion um, and the size of the football club in Lens. He had four years um, in, in northern France and... Uh, Robbie has done. Uh, Robbie Thompson has done a series of interviews, including one with uh, with Robbie Slater, and it is uh, it's very very interesting. So let's uh, let's hear what happened as Robbie Slater tells Robbie Thompson why he thinks the uh, the Lens fans took such a shine to him. Lens, they love Big Baton uh, because it's a working class town. It's a working class area. Uh, they love fighters, and in me, they got a fighter. 
not only a fighter, but they got something very different that I think not only Lawrence but France had seen was this red-headed fucking kangaroo who went around like a lunatic. <laughs> um, and, and they loved that. And they loved that. They thought I was crazy. The players thought I was crazy. And, and I, I guess I was a little bit crazy. And, uh, but I was very determined. So, Robbie, that was um, a very interesting chat you had with Robbie Slater, a, a Premier League champion with uh, Blackburn in 94-95. Um, you can listen, by the way, to the whole interview on, on Le Bourgeois, uh, on, on, our, on our platform. But, Robbie, um, you found him in, in, in good spirits. He's a, he's a bit of a character, isn't he? He is. Robbie, Robbie is an absolute character. We used, we worked, I worked uh, with Robbie for two years back in Australia commentating the A-League and Garby, who's who's with us, has worked with him for a lot longer at, at, at Fox Sports Australia as well. Robbie is is a, a real character, and I don't think it's got anything to do with the fact that he was a big star in, in Australian football or soccer, as it was when we were growing up. He He's just mad. He is completely mad, and everyone has told me, everyone I've met with, everyone that's played with him have all said he's completely mad. And, and listen to the interview, because the language is very colourful, um, and you get the real feeling that, while he is mad, his time at Lance was something very, very special. And it's actually a, a very beautiful story, the one, the one Robbie tells. Um, he was an excellent footballer. He played, and something that probably won't get into this podcast is another little aside story. He, he played for Australia against Argentina when we almost qualified for the World Cup in the USA 94. We were the last team to, in the last, very last playoff in November 93 to qualify for the World Cup. And Robbie Slater was enormous. We, we drew 1-1 in Sydney, we lost to an own goal in Buenos Aires, 1-0. Uh, Batistuta shot deflected into the top corner. And Maradona played. And at the end of the game in Sydney, Maradona said, who's the redhead? He was incredible. He said he could play in Italy. He was at Napoli, or just left Napoli, but he said he's good enough to play in Italy. He was, And, it was, and Robbie was a, a star, but he is mad. And just one thing, Matt, your intro, it was very Australian, but far too polite. With, you can't call Daniel... Daniel, you can't call David David or, 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 well, me Robbie because I'm Robbie now, but there is a rule to Australian name calling. And it is if your name is one syllable, you have to add a syllable. And if your name is more than one syllable, you reduce it. So if you were introduced to me as Matthew, then I would just call you Matt. If you were introduced to me as Matt, then you become Matty. Or <laughs> you, you are the only person since, <laughs> since my mum when I was about seven who calls me Matty. <laughs> well, da- David is Dave, but if it's Dave, then it's Davo. Or, and, or D- Daniel Garb is either Garby or Garby. Dan. Yeah, Garby, because Garb Correct. is only one syllable, so you have to add a syllable to, to Garby. Garby, Garby. Let me, let me... <laughs> Could you tell us, Garby, what, what, what your memories are of Robbie Slater? How, how sort of good a player and important player was he in terms of sort of the Australian game back back in the 90s well he is mad as Robbie said my memories of Robbie recently are I mean working with him for a number of years early on I remember there was one morning we were catching a cab together to the airport and I was five minutes late meeting him in the lobby of the hotel and he went so ballistic I've never heard anyone react like that in my life I didn't know if he was joking or being serious I said Robbie we're gonna be there an hour and a half early relax but that's just the way he is. He's just everything's a million miles an hour. And he played his football like that, which I think is why he was he was so successful. Everything he did was with such intensity and probably why, as he says, the French warmed to him so much because he was maybe a, a bit of a contrast to the 
prototypical um, French footballer. So, look, a lot of people here remember him from his Premier League days. He was a Premier League winner at Blackburn and then played at West Ham and Southampton. But Lons is where he had clearly his greatest run in club football. And it's a shame that he doesn't get remembered as much amongst uh, the average football fan because of that, firstly. And secondly, I feel sorry for Robbie in a footballing sense because, as Robbie Thompson pointed out, he was a top-quality player, but he came just before what we call the golden generation in Australia. Now, Robbie would have held his own in that generation. He was clearly good enough, as his uh, record suggests. But when we talk about the great players, we, we so often remember the golden generation, that team that went to the 2006 World Cup, broke a 32-year drought, and did so well. We do remember the players before them, but they get left behind a little bit because they never went to a World Cup, and Robbie was chief amongst that group. So, uh, yeah, remembered fondly, quality player, but uh, sometimes gets left out of the all-time great discussion because of that uh, fact that he never went to the World Cup. Yeah, I think Robbie did really well in Lens because his character was suited to the place, to be honest. I mean, if, if you're a red-headed footballer, it's probably sensible to go to the north of France rather than go and play in Marseille anyway because they don't get quite so much sunshine up there. But the whole ethos of Lens is built around the, the working-class coal mining culture. And when you get off the, the train in Lens, it's a very short walk to the Stade Félix Bollard. Um, but you'd be hard-pressed to name the second most impressive building in Lens. It really is the football club and not a lot else if you're coming there as the visitor. So you can understand why the people who live there have such a passion for their team. It's very much the, the origins of, of football in Western Europe and the working man's theatre and everything like that. And I think Slater's yeah, work ethic and attitude perfectly suited to Le Sonnyor. Yeah, and they, uh, they actually gave him an incredible send-off at the end of his fourth season when he, when he moved to Blackburn. Um, he came out onto the pitch and, uh, and, and gave a speech with his microphone. And it was, yeah, it, 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 just a really improbable sort of matchup, but, but a huge success. And we are going to hear more from the uh, red-haired kangaroo a little bit later because it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Um, his his time at Lance. But Robbie's been busy. Robbie Thompson's been busy this week. He's uh, spoken to quite a few Aussies, including Mile Sturjovski and Frank Farina. Now, Sturjovski um, also did very well in France. He had four seasons over here. A little bit later, it was um, uh, in 2000, he joined Lille. Uh, Mile Sturjovski did a, did a terrific job there. Frank Farina played for Strasbourg and for Lille in, in, in the 90s. And um, the two of them told Robbie what it was like um, as a sort of trailblazing Australian, not many Aussies had, had come over to Europe. What was it like for them playing in France, carrying the flag and, and having to prove yourself as, as an Australian soccer player, as it were? So um, let's hear what Mile Stajowski and then Frank Farina have to say. You know, I think, you know, people like um, Harry Kuehl and, and Marco Duca kind of gave Australians a, a decent name, I guess. But mm -hmm. in France, you really, that doesn't, you know, speak for much. I think um, it took me, I would say, at least six months to, to gain a bit of respect. And um, I think, um, I think, yeah, just playing regularly and then scoring my first goal. Yeah. I think that kind of um, earned me a bit of respect. And... The way that you know, I mean, you've lived there now for for quite a while. But for me, I realised that after one season, a whole season, I found out that four or five of my teammates actually spoke English. 
<laughs> I didn't really know that before. Now I knew there was one or two, but it took a whole season before they accepted me, you know, and, and I think that was because they wanted me to really learn French and give it a go and, um, you know, kind of uh, live, live the French way. You know, they're very patriot, uh, patriotic that way. Yeah, yeah. I tried, but like I'm the sort of guy, I don't want to make mistakes. So I never yeah. would speak <laughs> French a lot until I kind of knew what I was saying. So for quite a while, I was kind of just a quiet guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't really um, speak much to me, you know. But um, as the confidence got better, I started to speak a bit more. But it was literally at the end of the season, that's when a few of them come up to me and started speaking English. I thinking, <laughs> oh, this, this would have been nice about five or six months ago. <laughs> For me, and it's only my, my, my humble opinion, but uh, back in those times, our development structures and our development setups in, in Australia were much better than what they are now. And anyone who, 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 who says differently would have to convince me, uh, you know, very much that um, our, our development is the same. Our, you know, our academies, our institutes of sports. You know, back then we saw all the players that, you, you know, you mentioned that were playing, you know, and we're, we're talking back then, I would say 80% of them that were over there um, in Europe were playing, you know, pretty much regular first-team football yeah. or you know, very much on the fringe of first-team football at big clubs, at, in big leagues around the, the world. Um, you know, obviously the more numbers that go over, that's not going to be possible purely numbers-wise. But uh, I personally think, um, you know, our over the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years, our development systems or our structure uh, have, have gone backwards. And that's that's... Me being brutally honest, um, you know, I hate to say that, and that's not through any any fault of any one individual. I think it's just a a result of you know changes and things that have happened, um, whether it be with, with governments you know, dropping funding or you know the A League starting, where you know the government was saying, well, these clubs are professional now, fully professional, they should be involved with the development. We're going to pull our money out of the academies uh so yeah there's been a lot of reasons for it well it's interesting stuff isn't it garby i mean can you remember back in the in the, in the 90s was the australian public sort of kept uh, informed of, of of how these guys were doing over in france and you know do you, do you think the experience that they got in league i playing for the top clubs we had ned zelich we're going to hear from ned zelich as well who uh, who played under giru at at auxerre you know Farina played with, with frank leboeuf and some other very good players mm. at, at Strasbourg. Do you think Australia, you know, ultimately benefited as well from this? Oh, undoubtedly. I would say the hardcore football fan knew about what our uh, big names were doing in France. I would say the average sports fan wasn't aware of it as much and about any Australians playing overseas really until the Premier League boom. That had a big impact on players playing abroad. Um, but in the French League, where a lot of players played just before that era, definitely the hardcore football fan knew about them. And it was the source of great pride. I mean, Zelic, Slater, uh, Farina, these are some of our greatest players ever. And they played in the, in the early 90s. And we we're all aware that French football provided them with a the great platform. And we were so proud that our players were mixing it with a high calibre of player uh, in such a well-credentialed league. Eddie Krenchevich, who came before them, is known as one of the pioneers. Both he and Farina are known as a pioneer who went abroad in the 
in the late 80s and paved the way for the likes of, you know, Baduka and Kuehl and so many others who, who came after them. Zelic was different. He was a bona fide freak talent from when he was young. I mean, everyone knew he was going abroad from when he was sort of 16, 17, and he was at Dortmund uh, before he went to France. And, uh, I mean, a guy like him, there was never any doubt. But, again, him playing in France was great for us because um, – he was someone that we, we pinned so much hope on as a football nation, Ned Zelic. And he went to so many clubs. But, uh, you know, his period in France is one that he, he recollects with a lot of pride. So, yeah, no doubt a huge impact on Australian football in, in that era. But you know, the, the average sports fan didn't know too much about what the Aussies were doing. The, the, the football fan, the hardcore football fan, most certainly did. The problem was we could never watch it. I mean, we literally had zero vision of French football on our TVs. Nothing. So you get a bit in magazines, a bit in the newspapers, but really that was it, which was a grand shame. Yeah, I think people have to to understand that that soccer. I mean, I, I guess you know you guys will confirm that, but I guess it has grown in the last twenty years in terms of popularity. But it's still very much a a, a secondary sport with, uh, of course, like Australian rules, rugby league, rugby union, and and cricket. Fantastic sport of cricket that I do try to to explain to my to my <laughs> French colleagues o, o, over here, but. Um, you know, back then it was a minor sport in, in, in Australia and it was not necessarily easy, was it, for the players um, to be coming to the other side of the world to, to play in France and to try to keep those, those links. We'll just bring in Robbie Slater, um, who was talking about the difficulties that he had trying to keep his, his Socceroo international career going while he was over here in France. Yeah, it was very hard, mate. We paid our own effort. You know, um, uh, you, know you have to go back with my time at Lons, because this the, the 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 World Cup campaign for USA '94 yeah. destroyed my career at Lons, probably in a lot of ways because I was hardly there. Um, yeah. Patrice Berg had taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a few few new players, time, but I was away that that much. That, you know, I ended up on the bench at Lons uh, quite a lot in the in my last month at Lons, purely given the World Cup campaign we'd had. Well, Robbie Slater played in uh, Australia's first international against France. It was uh, in 1994, I believe. It was a 1-0 victory for Les Bleus, a certain Eric Cantona scored. But, um, Robbie Thompson, it, it's been quite close between Les Bleus and, uh, and Les Kangaroos, or Les, Les, Les Socceroos, let's call them. Um, I think three, three wins for France, one draw one Australian victory in the in the five, but invariably hard fought games. Absolutely, and and some some very memorable games. In two thousand, France were World Cup winners. They were European champions, and we played them twice in quick succession. A friendly in Melbourne, which is remembered for a, a horror tackle by our our infamous or famous Kevin Musket on Christophe Dugarry, where he put him out for several months, and Muskie. Had a, has a, a long list of, of victims um, for, for some of his tackles. He, he was a, a very nice man off the pitch, musky, and then someone that suffered from absolute white line fever. Um, so, and I seem but to Robbie, remember that... Um, yeah, Dugarry missed the Euros, didn't he, because of that tackle? I think he did. He, his knee was in all sorts of, yeah, on the sideline. I remember I was at the game. And I remember okay. the, the the challenge was but you try you try telling telling Dugary that Muskie is a is a lovely guy off the pitch. <laughs> well, I, not on it, yes. <laughs> and um and the second one was in a Confederations Cup match, and it was Zumana Cameras 
who I know quite well now, Papus, at, at PSG. He's PSG assistant coach, and I often rib him uh, uh, about it. Um, it was his first and only France cap. He was playing, uh, there was another debutant as well, I think, uh, Brechet, who, who made his first France international. Frank Leboeuf got sent off very early, leaving Papus at the back by himself. And uh, Clayton Zane knocked in a, a rebound off a Josip Skoko free kick. And Australia defeated the world champions and the European champions 1-0 in the Confederations Cup. So for a long time, Australia had this fantastic record uh, against France until, and Garby will remember this one fondly because I was commentating, Garby was the, the sideline reporter of uh, yeah. Australia versus France at the Parc des Princes here in Paris in a World Cup warm-up, well, friendly match before the 2014 World Cup and it was an unmitigated disaster for, for us soccerers. Yeah, it was I, a bloodbath. Yeah, go for it, Garby. What, what, can, can I just say, I remember, because there was... Quite a lot of pressure on France. They were warming up for their playoff against Ukraine. Deschamps was, was under pressure. France, uh, France won 6-0. And the, the important event from a French point of view was that Karim Benzema scored. Yes. And he hadn't scored for 100... No, sorry, 1,222 minutes. And there was quite Can a you say that, with, the, say that with an Australian accent, Matt? Yeah, the, that figure? <laughs> 1,222, as Richie Benno <laughs> would say. Um but yeah, no, there was a funny moment when the crowd sort of ironically cheered his name and he, and he played along and it was, it, it was quite nice. But Garby, yeah, it must have been tough for you, pitch side. I remember during that game, the crowd booing Benzema and just thinking, oh my word, imagine we had Karen Benzema up front in the Australian team and they are booing him here in France. Like it was just, I couldn't quite comprehend it. I mean, I understood why, but it just seemed crazy from our point of view. Yeah, that game's memorable uh, for the wrong reasons. Um, so, Holger Rosick, the Australian coach, was sacked after the game. We knew going into the game because they just lost 6-0 to Brazil a month mm-hmm. before. The yeah. end of qualifying did not go well. We still had a pretty strong team. It was the end of the golden generation. And Holger Rosick, our coach at the time, was under serious pressure. And as a journalist going into that game, I had to interview him post game on the on the broadcast and no one likes interviewing a coach or a player about their job security you have to ask the questions when it's required but it's never a good feeling I remember thinking before the game you know just lose 2-0 2-0 and the tension's out of it it's a decent performance away to a top class team at halftime it was 4-0 full-time it was 6-0 and it could have easily been 10 I mean the Australian team was terrible they hit their lowest ebb in probably six, seven years. And you could tell the players had stopped playing for Osic. So the game was memorable because it put an end to a Socceroos coach's career. They made a call during that second half when the goals were flying in and Australia had pretty much given up. Frank Lowy, the Australian chairman, called the CEO from his Sydney mansion at six in the morning and said, sack him straight after the game. And by the time he got to his hotel, Olga Osic was dismissed. So that's a, a very memorable game. From an Australian point of view, you're listening to uh, to Daniel Garb, also known as Garby, on uh, on Le Bourgeois, the official League One podcast. You can uh, contact us via email, League One Podcast at gmail.com, or using the hashtag Le Bourgeois on Twitter. Any questions uh, about the uh, the French season? Any any transfer speculation? Anything you want to ask us? Do uh, do do get in touch. Just very quickly, bouncing off what you said, I actually enjoyed interviewing an Australian coach who was about to get sacked. This is, it's a, I'm going off at a tangent here, but the, the Rugby World Cup in 2007, 
I was doing that job and I interviewed John Connolly before England played Australia in, in, in Marseille and I drank a lot of coffee and my hand was shaking. And he said to me, oh, it was a horrible interview because he just gave like one word answers. And afterwards he said, oh, mate, you want to do something about that shaking hand? And then England won. Dave, David Crossan was, was there at the velodrome watching it. And, and I just thought I'm going to grill him after the game. I know this is going to be hard for him, but yeah, I didn't let him go. I just kept going in with more questions, more questions. And I, and I enjoyed that. But that was a sort of personal, um, personal anecdote. I just want to throw back to, uh, to Garby because one match we haven't talked about is, uh, is that famous game in Kazan, the, the first game of the World Cup for both uh, Australia and for France. And that was uh, where I had the pleasure of, of meeting Daniel Garb. But um, ultimately, another unhappy experience for you, Garby, even, even though, you know, when you compare it to the, to the 6-0, I mean, this was, this was a close one. It finished 2-1 to France. There was, there was quite a bit of controversy as well. Um, how, how, how did you see that game? Yeah, I mean, it, how do you reflect on it now? I mean, it was the eventual champions. So a lot of pride in hindsight as an Australian football lover in terms of the way that the team played. I don't think France were at their best yet. I think they would have been a team that went into the tournament saying we can win it. Let's not peak too early. Let's try work through the gears. I think that needs to be understood upon reflection. But... The penalty at the end was dodgy. I think Australia had a very good chance of earning a result, which would have given us a big boost in terms of getting through the group. I think France could have still won the World Cup regardless. But uh, uh, there was a touch on the ball from Josh Risden as he brought down, I can't remember which French player it was um, anymore. Griezmann, that's that's it. Um, There was a touch there. So what VAR were looking at early on in the tournament, I have no idea. But uh, We was robbed, Garby. We was robbed. Maybe we were, maybe we were, but a VAR went our way as well for a, for a penalty. So uh, I don't know, even though that one was there, I mean, look, ultimately we lost to the uh, the eventual champions. We should have beaten Denmark in our next game. That was our big mm. uh, disappointment in the tournament. Losing to France is no skin off your nose, but you know, a good memory. We're up against a crack team. I remember posting <laughs> the Let Equip uh proposed 11 for France a day or two before the game and the reaction from uh, the Australian fans, when looking at that team, was like, oh, my word, we are absolutely screwed here. And we did okay. So, uh, you know, taking all that into account, I think uh, it's something to reflect on with a bit of pride. It's quite a bit. Actually, that game, I'm, I'm not going to let Robbie come in because I know he's just going to go on a rant about the VAR and the, uh, and, and, and the deflected goal. But that game, I think, was so important for France because, um, you know, in terms of what happened overall, because they were way below their best. And actually, Deschamps picked the team that everybody wanted him to pick. And like you say, Garby, you know, he went with Dembele, Mbappe and Griezmann as a, as a front three. And it just looked like this incredible team. But Australia played deep, defended deep. Uh, Mbappe, Dembele got absolutely no space, um, got more and more frustrated. And actually, you know, as, as David Crossan um, was pointing out just uh, a moment ago off air, it was uh, Giroud and Matuidi coming on and sort of giving them a focal point in attack, giving them energy in midfield that, that transformed the game and ultimately gave Deschamps the blueprint that he, that he wanted. He, Deschamps absolutely hammered Mbappe and, and a few others after that game. So, so it was all pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, so France can say maybe thank you to, to, to Australia for at least showing them that they had to, to play a slightly different way. Let's, uh, let's move, move on, though. And I want to bring Dave Crossan in because uh, Dave has been... Um, researching another Australian who, who played in France, but perhaps somebody that uh, you won't necessarily think of when you think about Australia. But uh, he was an Italian international. 
and he did briefly play in France with with Monaco, Dave. Yeah, I mentioned him in my poem, Christian Vieri. Now, he, he was born in Bologna and, of course, played for Italy at international level. But his family moved to Australia in the 70s. And so he grew up in southwestern Sydney as his dad, Prate, was playing for Marconi Stallions. And he had a very Australian childhood, actually. But he admitted in the early noughties that he quite fancied being a cricketer that he was a good left-hander. Alan Border, who was a brilliant left-hander and had a terrific moustache, captained Australia in the 80s, uh, was his idol. He wanted to be like Alan Border, but his life took a different path. He ended up playing football to a very, very high level. But when he turned up in Monaco, that was to try and resurrect his career, really, because he'd done so well at Inter Milan. A move to AC Milan hadn't come off. He turned up at Monaco in January 2006 and he was trying to find form and fitness so that he could play at another World Cup that summer and what I remembered from that time uh, when I was still working well the first spell I had working quite a lot in French football was that he had one of the biggest shirts I had ever seen a very baggy shirt covering up his excess kilos um, and I thought he was horrendous that was my memory of him but then I looked into it a bit more deeply and realised he scored five goals in 10 games, that the old instincts were still there. He still knew how to find the back of the net. He scored double away at Rennes in his second league game. Uh, that was the last double of his career, in fact. A couple of other poachers finishes, a nice penalty. But his World Cup hopes were dashed in a game against PSG. He was playing against them, got himself set up for a shot. Bernard Mendy made a block, his knee jarred. And he suffered a knee injury that meant that he couldn't play in the summer tournament. Uh, it's a bit of a shame because, yeah, no, I remembered him as having done appallingly and being one of the biggest flops in Monaco's history. But five goals in 10 games, can't really argue with that. Just to bring it back to the Australian thing, and obviously Christian Vieri was a, a, an incredible footballer. And you left out Atletico Madrid as well, Dave, where he, that's, that was his first real thing because I remember seeing him play as a teenager for Pisa when he was on loan from Torino, when I was tra- backpacking, as, as you said in your poem, Dave, around Europe as a, as a teenager myself. Um, but, Gabi, I don't think we really felt Christian Vieri was an Aussie. Not yeah. like his... And his brother was. His brother, Massimiliano, played for Australia. He was yeah. born during that period when he was there. Christian was there from four to 12 years old, I think. Was great friends with an Australian captain called Paul Ocon. And I think yeah. they still have a few, you know, great friendship. Christian still goes back there. It's very funny when you speak to Christian Vieri, which I've interviewed him a couple of times. When you do, can we do it in English? And he goes, yeah. And this Australian accent comes out. is really surreal because it's just, you're just not, not ready for it at all. But I, I never felt, and probably it's because Christian Vieri, he played for Italy from such a young yeah. age that I never really felt He's an Aussie. And I, thought, I felt it was more interesting. And not so much as we had other players that played for Croatia during World Cups. And I felt they were much more Australian. And they, they also went away. But they were, I mean, I'd seen them play in Australia. I'd never seen Christian play in Australia. I'd seen Joey Didilic and, and, and Seric and, and, and uh, Josip, um, the central defender. Diminic. Diminic, who played over 100 times for Croatia. These boys, you know, Tony Dorigo, who played for England, he he was an Aussie. The, before that, these guys, but Christian, no, I didn't. I didn't have that 
the, but it was nice that he'd spent this time in Australia. But would he? Yeah. But Garby, would he have got a game with uh, with the <laughs> up front? You know? Well, uh, we had the big V bomber up front, so I'm not so sure he might have had to pinch it off the bench. Then again, we had John Aloisi as well, so he might have had to uh, just play the less meaningful games. Christian, no, I think he would have <laughs> squeezed his way in. Um, he did but he was before to... then as well. He was, he was before he was, then. He was 90s. He was before then. Yeah, he was, of course. I mean, look, he would have been our greatest ever player. Let's not mess mm-hmm. around. I mean, um, he did do an Instagram pre- uh, post recently where he said, G'day, mates. And the whole of Australian football went nuts. Christian Vieri remembers how to speak Australian. This is fantastic. Um, but it's funny. I actually spoke to Paul Ocon recently. I did an interview with him, a long-form interview with him. And I asked him that question. I said, you know, this Vieri link that we all know about, does he actually care about his Australian history? What's his take on it? And he says, he does. He said he grew up here. He learned his football playing at Marconi. Now, he's very much Italian. His father, and he came to Australia to play football, went back when his time was done. He made his name with the Italian team and playing in the Serie A um, you know, more than other leagues. So he is Italian, but he, he's, he's very fond of his time in Australia, and it means a lot to him. It's, it's his second nation. That's it, basically. But uh, the notion that he just grew up here, doesn't care, he's an Italian football star in Australia, is nothing to him. That wasn't quite the case, which I think was refreshing for Australian fans to hear. Well, we're going to have a, a little uh, interlude now as we um, invite you to uh, to try to guess our, our deja vu for this week. First of all, um, we will bring you up to speed with the answer from last week. The clue was I played in the Netherlands, Spain and England. Before I arrived in France in 2007, I left the velodrome just as Didier Deschamps arrived. I finished my career as a black cat in England. We had three correct answers. Liam Wraith, Habib Barr, and yes, you guessed it, Adam Cyrilnik, who gets it every single week. It was Budovan Zenden, the, uh, the Dutch international who did very well at Marseille. And our producer, Ian Holyman, has actually been speaking to Zenden um, just in the last couple of days. And you will hear that interview next week when we have a special on Olympique de Marseille. Now, for the Deja Who this week, Ian's he's, he's, he's up the ante. He's, he's made it hard to see if we can catch Adels, Adam Cyrilnik out. So um, if you think you know the answer, send us in the uh, response using the hashtag Deja Who L1 on Twitter or via email league1podcast at gmail.com. So here we go. I come from the Paris region but I finished my career down under. My first club was in Normandy, and I then swapped to the English Channel for the Mediterranean coast. I featured for three different English Premier League teams, and I played in a World Cup final. Now, I have to say that, that that's tougher. That's tougher. It's certainly gettable. So, Adam and uh, everybody else listening, send your answers in on the hashtag DejaHoL1, or you can use the email league one podcast at gmail.com. Now we're going to move back to our principal theme, which is uh, Australians uh, playing in France. I'm going to talk a minute about uh, Mille Stojovsky, the uh, mercur- I'd say mercurial left-footed uh, attacking midfielder, scored some, uh, scored some super goals during his four seasons at Lille between 2000 and, and 2004. And it was a, a time when Lille had a very strong side as well. Bruno Cheru, uh, Pascal Sigon, and they had some, uh, some top coaches. So Robbie Thompson spoke to Mile Stojovsky about his time there and about playing under coach Vahid Halilhozic and then later Claude Puel. He was, he was a very hard manager, you know, very strong <laughs> in discipline. Um, you know, I think he, he, he got a lot of respect, you know, whenever he entered a room, everyone would be quiet, you know, that 
don't want to, you know, set a foot wrong. He had that, that, <laughs> you know, personality about him. And, um, but I, I must say away from the group and on what, you know, one-on-one situation, he was a good man, you know, he had a good heart. He wanted yeah. to make sure that, you know, that I was okay and, and, you know, settled in and all that sort of stuff. But in, in a team environment, he, he shows everyone who's boss. That's for sure. I mean, we, we had a bit of a, a roller coaster in a relationship, I would, <laughs> I would call it. You know, I've, I really felt like when he first came to the club, he was, it felt like he was trying to obviously bring in his own players, his own thoughts and try and get rid of as much of the old squad as, as possible. You know, so yeah. that's how I felt. And I felt like, uh, obviously, the, I'm not sure how many games it was, but for quite a while I wasn't playing under him and I really had to prove myself again. Um, which I eventually ended up doing. So um, I ended up playing quite a bit, of, you know, un- under him. But I, I, when my contract was up, I, I really felt like I had to move on. And um, as much as I loved the club, I felt like I had to move on and, and try something new. The Dave, you remember that that time at Lille? They had, they had a good side. I can remember them playing against Manchester United in the in the Champions League, getting a draw against United as as well. Um, must have been interesting for somebody like Stojovsky coming up um, and playing for a, for a coach like Vahid Halilhodzic, who uh, is an extremely hard taskmaster and uh, has the nickname over here, Coach Vahid, because of his uh, military style of, uh, of, of coaching. What memories have you got of that time? Well, I think both of the coaches, Vahid Halilhodzic and Claude Puel, if they share something, it is a love of discipline and a desire that everyone in the club, not just the players, do things the way they want. And we've seen that more recently with the way that Halil Hodzic left Nantes because, uh, because things weren't going the way he wanted them to. We've seen it with Claude Puel, both at, at Lyon and Saint-Étienne, that he's had enhanced responsibilities compared to a usual coach in France, that he takes on this role of general manager because he wants to run things from the top down and oversee everything that goes on within the football club. Um, I admit, when it comes to Sturjovsky, I used to share an office with Robbie Thompson around that time. So he used to tell me a lot about what Sturjovsky was up to. But it was only over the weekend watching a compilation of Sturjovsky's goals that I realised what excellent timing he had getting into the box. I'd totally forgotten how good he was in the air. He scored some fantastic headers during his time at Lille. And I think you'd have to say, when you look at characters of players, and we alluded to this earlier with Robbie Slater, Apart from a couple of mavericks at the fringes, the sort of Viduka Kuehl types, you'd expect Australians to be able to apply what a coach wants them to do. It's a, a more English way of going about things. So I, I'm going to say that Australians working with these disciplinarian coaches is not necessarily a bad fit. Uh, speaking to all these guys, and just on an, an aside before I get there very quickly, <laughs> because I love an aside, these guys were all excellent and very uh, generous with their time. All four guys that I spoke with, Mille, Frank, Robbie and Ned, um, all more than willing. And I think that's something of their character as well. They had this time and they want to share what they learned in, in Europe as footballers, as professional players with other Australians and, and help the game grow back home. And I think that's something that, that these Australian players that, that played in Europe feel very strongly that they have an obligation to try and take everything they learn and, and use it to something beneficial back home. Mille is an assistant coach now. He was involved in the soccer who set up in, in Russia in 2018. He will be an assistant coach in the A-League 
next season as well with a with a new franchise club. He has his own soccer academy uh, in Australia as well, teaching teaching youngsters. Um, Frank Farina coached Brisbane. He was player coach and won the local title in Australia back in '97. He coached the Socceroos to a three-one win over England, amongst other things, at, at Craven Cottage, with, which uh, is famous for for us Aussies. That that win over the old old enemy. Um, Robbie Slater is a pundit. Ned Zelich is a pundit. Eddie Krinchevich, we spoke about him the first, the, the the original trailblazer. He's still coaching back in Oz. He's coached at the highest level in Australia. Zlatko Arambasic um, is the other the the lost man that we haven't spoken about yet. Um, in that's played in France. Ross Aloisi and Nicky Carl, the others, but. I spoke to Ned Zelich and Frank Farina to come back to Dave's point about coaching and discipline. Frank Farina played under um, Gilbert Gress at Strasbourg, who's a very famous disciplinarian as well. Millet with, with those two we just spoke about. Ned Zelich said that Guy Roux was the, the most regimented military-style coach, and he'd come from three years in the Bundesliga, and he, was, he thought nothing could be as full on as Bundesliga was. He said it was, it was more disciplined, what he found in France. Um, and that is something that, that Australian players, I think you're right, they are, Mille said in his interview, I was a disciplined player. Frank Farina as well. You tell me what to do, I do it. And they've benefited from, from this situation. We didn't have a, Ned was a bit more of a, a free spirit, incredibly talented player. Um, and I think he had a couple more run-ins and fell a little bit foul of, of Giroud's um, decisions, which, which he accepted as a, as a professional footballer, always will, but he didn't play as much as his talent certainly would have, would have deserved. But um, they all learned something. And I, think, and I think Australians are probably suited to a, a French, a well-regimented, well-structured, bien-en-place French football. At that time, they would have certainly enjoyed that because they were coming from, you know, you're talking late 90s, semi-professional setups in Australia. Um, so going to France, which so many of them did early on in their careers, I mean, even though it would have been a culture shock and they wouldn't have been accepted early on, maybe Ned was a bit different because he came with a big reputation. Uh, they would have loved just being in that structured, high-level football environment and culture, and it did so much for them in in their careers. I mean, Stajowski's a fascinating Socceroo for mine because his record tells you how talented a player he was. Again, because he never played in the Premier League, he gets lost a little bit in Australian eyes, but his record in France is fantastic. That 06 World Cup, I mean, he plays against Italy in the second round and he played so well. He played another game as well during the tournament and really performed. Who's hitting gloved him because he was the player you just slotted into the team and he did a job. And you go through his record and he scored a lot more goals than people give him credit for, but he was just such a fantastic contributor. And I think he would have learned a lot of that and gained a lot of confidence from his time in France. So French football would have certainly benefited him enormously, but he is one of our most underrated socceroos and the forgotten man of the golden generation, I think, Milos Tudrovsky. And a top yeah, bloke. Mean, yeah, top legend. Bloke as well. <laughs> He does seem a top bloke, and you can listen to to Robbie's chat with uh, Mile Slajovsky uh, and all of these guys using our our platform. You can get Le Bourgeois on uh, on Spotify, Deezer, Apple, Google. We're there on on all the podcasts. I just want to dwell a little bit on on Ned Zelic. We haven't heard from him yet in in the podcast. And Ned Zelic, as as Garby said, was a hugely talented young player. Uh, moved to Europe at a young age. Did did great things with uh, with Borussia Dortmund. 
When he joined Auxerre, he only had, only had one season at Auxerre, 1996-97, but Auxerre had just won the double. This was just an unbelievable story. Giroud took charge of Auxerre in the 60s. They were an amateur club, and he just built everything, along with the president, Monsieur Amel. Um, they, they, they took Auxerre uh, to the top of the French game. They took him into Europe. I think they had three or four European quarterfinals. And Ned Zelic, actually, when he arrived, he, he had some pretty big boots to fill because um, Laurent Blanc had just left Auxerre to join Barcelona. And Giroud remembered a Euro, this is, says something about Giroud, actually, remembered a European tie um, between Auxerre and Dortmund and had spotted this uh, Aussie centre-back, Ned Zelic, and thought, hmm, keep my eye on him. He could be one for the future. And uh, yeah, he said, all right, I wouldn't mind, wouldn't mind signing you. Ned Zelic joined. And uh, another great chat that, that Robbie had that you can listen to the full interview. Let's just hear one little anecdote that uh, Ned told Robbie about, about Giroud. We mentioned last week how he um, would sort of police his players. He had, he had spies on, uh, on, 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 the, uh, on the doors of nightclubs in Paris. He had people in the payage booth, in the, in the toll booths, who would tell him. Because it's probably what, for me, it's probably two hours drive Auxerre to Paris. Mm. For these footballers, it's probably an hour. Um, just up, up, up the motorway, popping into the nightclub. So um, Ned told Robbie that, yeah, he was very much aware that he was being observed 24-7 by Giroud. Well, let's finish with Giroud because there are funny stories about, like, and I imagine he knew exactly when you'd travel to Paris on a Monday because he'd, he, he had uh, contacts, if you like, in the, the toll booths when you'd come off the auto route before you came back into to Auxerre on the auto route into Paris. So he'd know, oh, well, we just saw Mr. Zelich leave this morning, uh, uh, <laughs> Mr. Rue. He's, he's headed up to Paris. That's right, yeah. Bounces on nightclub doors, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to, I mean, this, apparently this story is, is true as well. Um, so we'd go into, uh, so before home games, um, we'd go into a hotel mm-hmm. and spend the night in a hotel. So we'd drive to the hotel and everyone would leave their cars there. Um, and apparently he would put uh, rocks there. Um, <laughs> Under the wheels. This is one of the stories. <laughs> so on the actual wheel, you know, to see if any players had left, <laughs> had left the hotel. <laughs> I mean, when someone told that story, it was just, I was on the floor, just hilarious. And, and the thing is, I don't know if it's true or not, but I wouldn't put it past him, you know, just type of guy. Did you have any strange have moments with him? Did you, have any, did you have any moments where you thought, are you serious? Like, can, can this be? Or did you have any, did you see firsthand this, this legend of doing crazy things like that? Well, I mean, I, I, I worked out, I, I've heard the stories anyway, like, and, and, <laughs> Yeah, you know, when you get to a place and a coach has been there for a long time, you know he's going to have, um, you know, have sort of control over <laughs> everything, you know? I mean, it's it's his, this club is his baby, you know? Look, yeah. look what he's done to it. He's taken it from eighth tier to, to Champions League. So you know he's going to um, want to know everything and have control over everything. Um, but... I, I mean, I had uh, I had a couple of run-ins with him, you know, because I was just the type. I, I would go out and do my job, but if I felt that I received um, uh, criticism that that wasn't justified, mm-hmm. um, I was just the type. I'd always fire back, 
and it happened a couple of times. Just a word on Ned, because Ned, for me, we're about the same age. Um, maybe he's a little bit older, but we both grew up in Canberra, um, which is something, for me, Ned was the first Australian footballer who was really a link, a direct link to me as a kid growing up in Canberra and the amazing world of European football. And we'd watch the Italian 90 in the middle of the night, me and my mates, we were football mad. And suddenly we had this player who would score incredible goals, go on YouTube, see his goal against the Netherlands, which qualified Australia for the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. It is truly a breathtaking, remarkable goal. Tells you the talent he had. Um, and I remember going and writing Zelich in painting it graffiti style on a, on the side of a wall near our local <laughs> thing, just because it was a he he was our hero. And I, I didn't tell him this when I was interviewing him, but but his career and it was just so special. And it's a shame for me that Ned didn't go on and have the career. I think I mean a Bundesliga champion, a fantastic player, a UEFA Cup finalist with Dortmund, but but could even have done so much more brilliant player oh no doubt and uh, it's a shame that he didn't do more in his career injury certainly held him back but he made some iffy club choices as well after Dortmund he went to Queen's Park Rangers he was actually their club record signing and walked out on them after a month because Mm. he'd come from Dortmund and he just said this is just not for me this is just not the level that uh that I need in my football right now I mean they were years behind what clubs in other parts of Europe were doing. So he probably loved going to Auxerre and playing under someone like Giroud and getting back into that high-level structured environment. But, I mean, he was such a talent. You spoke about that goal in 92, uh, leading up to 92 against the Dutch to qualify Australia for the Olympics. I had a good chat with him recently and Australia were going well in that Olympics and then the campaign fell apart and I said, why? And he said they started basically tagging him at sweeper. So they would man-mark him as a sweeper. I mean, imagine that in football today, putting a, a, a negating forward on a sweeper to stop him coming out with the ball from the back. So what they tried to do, Australia, to counter that was they put Zelic into midfield and Ocon to sweeper to try and confuse the opposition. And he said it just didn't work. Ned wasn't comfortable playing midfield. hadn't played there in a while. Ocon hadn't played sweeper in a while. And the whole campaign sort of heated out. But he was so important that at the Olympic Games, opposition coaches would actually man-mark him with the forward. So he's, without a doubt, one of the most talented players we've, uh, we've ever produced. Garby, um, these, these are fantastic stories, and I'm going to bring Robbie Slater in as well, um, who, you know, who made such a, such a big impact. What I want to know is why, why are they not still coming? Are the, are the Aussies, are, the, are there not enough good players to, for, for Ligue 1 to, to be signing them? Um, because surely it's 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 a great it's a great place for them, yeah. you know. I mean, we say Liga, and certainly it's 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 one of the top five leagues. But it's not, um, you know, that that there are clubs looking for bargains, looking for young players. Is the Australian market not offering them that? Partly, it's a good question. I had a long think about this today. I would say one of the reasons, and you guys can probably add on this as to whether it's accurate or not, because you know a lot more about French football. I would say the talent that's come through in French football just after this era of Australians that we're speaking about would have had an influence. I mean, France were producing so many great players and then so many other players were coming through from the African colonies that perhaps they didn't need players from Australia as much. They stopped looking at those options because they just had so many talents coming through. I imagine that might have been one of the reasons. The other reason is 
for an Australian player, they started to look at other countries because it was simply easier to assimilate into Europe, and that's English-speaking European countries. So a lot of Australians went to Holland. A lot of Australians have gone to Belgium. A lot have gone to Germany. Obviously, England, when the Premier League boomed, that was the destination one for them, and Scotland as well, because from an Australian point of view, it's just so much easier to adjust when you speak the language, whereas in France, they don't speak English as much, obviously, and there's that cultural um, blockage, if you like, which just makes it so much harder to adjust. And the agents have better connections to those other leagues that I mentioned because of that language barrier too. So they push the players to those sorts of leagues. I'd imagine those two um, reasons would be the the major the major angle on why we haven't had many Australian players going to France since. Robbie Slater told, tell, tells Robbie Thompson the story of how he arrived, how he, how he joined Lance. It's a story that lasts about 15 minutes and it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. This sort of road trip from his, his holiday where he was down in Croatia up to Lens via, via Brussels because he had to pick up his stuff where he was playing at Anderlecht and he, he, he had to go to this game for a trial and he scored a hat-trick in, in, in the trial. I'm not going to ruin all of the story, but it explains that Gervais Martel, the, uh, the Lens president, um, walked down from the stand and went up to Robbie Slater and he said, Robbie, you play for Lens. And, and then Robbie Slater said they were the only words of English he spoke to him during the four years. And, and he, he just couldn't, he realised these guys, they could speak English, but nobody spoke English to him. And I'm just going to bring Robbie Slater in now, talking a bit about his first impressions. And, you know, he, he talks about how that move came about, but also about his reaction. He didn't know where he was where, where he was putting his feet and suddenly where he, you know, he turned up and he saw this magnificent stadium. And uh, let's, let's hear from Robbie Slater. It was probably around one o'clock in the afternoon, one thirty in the afternoon. And I said, I, I just want to go and have a look at the stadium. So I walked up and the gate was open and I walked, walked up into the stand. The stadium was completely empty, mm-hmm. completely empty. And it was massive. I mean, you know, later on in my time there, we would break the record for spectators against a very fa- a, a very famous game against Marseille, mm-hmm. which broke the record in France at that time, which was near on 50,000 people. And um, I got to the stairs, so I was midway up the stand, and I looked out and I went, and I actually got goosebumps. And I thought, I want to play here. I'll tell you one thing, that is nice, that I was later to find out and forever hold dear to this day is the people uh, are the best people in the world, in my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're from, you know, coal mines and, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of people that didn't have a lot of money, if you want to put it like that. And uh, the, the, the surroundings, for some parts, are not, you know, filled with the slag heaps from the coal mines. And it started well for me, as I, I sort of fell in love with the supporters virtually straight away, and they did with me straight away. Well, Dave, Robbie Slater may not have heard of Lens uh, before, before he joined them, but they're a big football club in France. They've... Um... They've got a proud history. You talked about the, the coal mining past. I mean, you know, football is, it, is everything. And it's, it's almost comparable to a, to a club. I know you, you, you like one particular club in the northeast of, of England. But, um, you know, the football club is, is everything. And just, you know, imagining what it, what it would have been like for, for, for Robbie Slater back then. I mean, we talked about the fact that maybe it was, it, it, it was a good mix. But I mean, Lens is a, is a you know it's a proper um, stronghold, isn't it, in French football? Even if today they're in the second division. Yeah, and they they won the league. I mean, 
that in a way there are some parallels that you can draw between Auxerre and Lens, these fairly small towns with whether you can fit almost the entire population into the stadium. Uh, what we got there in Lens, I, I, I'm going to say, Matt, there's a lot more to see in Newcastle, which you alluded to, than there is in Lens. Culturally, it's a very different place. Um, but no, Les Sommiers, and it is a real shame that that they are one of the sleeping giants of French football and they've spent far too long in Ligue 2 recently. So mm. uh, we only really get to go up there nowadays when there are Coupe de France games. And those long-suffering supporters, all they want is a return to those 90s glory days, the, the era when you had Jean-Guy Valem as their emblematic defender with the long hair and the big beard, and that they had some quality players, Mark Vivian Foet, Smeetser, uh, to name just a couple, really good team. Dave, uh, Jean-Guy Valem was um, Robbie Slater's best man at his wedding. As And I do recommend you listen to Robbie Slater's interview, um, as well as those with uh, Ned Zelic, Mile Stojowski and Frank Farina. But yeah, Lens, they've they've produced some great players. Raphael Varane, um, arguably the best, certainly in the, in the modern era. They've had players like uh, Sedou Keita, El Haji Jerfin, you mentioned Mark Vivian Foe. They won the league in 98 and they became the first French team ever, pains me to say this, first French team ever to win at Wembley. Did you know that? They beat Arsenal in the Champions League at, at Wembley. And then soon after that, France beat England and Elka got a couple. Rob, Garby, I'm going off topic as ever. Um, I want you to sort of wrap up the podcast a little bit by picking your best, your best Australian in, in Ligue 1. Now, the criteria here, obviously the impact that they've made but the quality of of their performances and sort of the legacy that they've left i'm, I'm going to start with robbie thompson Jeez, that's a that's a tough one matt that we've only had seven so so the it's a it's a small choice um am i allowed to give various options for for different reasons yeah as long as you end up with one name okay <laughs> Well, I'm going to go then with one that we didn't hear from in a, in an interview just because he was the first. It's Eddie Krinchevich because Eddie Krinchevich was, and this is important for the legacy in Australia, and a lot of fans, young fans in Australia now, won't know Eddie Krinchevich. And he's, he, he was a player that left Australia in the 80s to go to Europe um, he went via the Yugos former Yugoslavia, but when he arrived in Belgium, he was he was a quality player. He was, I think, he scored over thirty goals for the Socceroos in a time when the Socceroos were were not playing much football, were playing difficult matches. If you were in Europe, you were were not necessarily coming back. Robbie Slater and Frank both paid their own way to come back for for many matches back in the early nineties and late eighties. Eddie Krinchevich was a champion. In Belgium, he was the first ever Australian to finish top scorer in a European league. Frank Farina then followed him at Club Bruges, but but Eddie Krinchevich was the the number nine at Anderlecht, and Anderlecht were a big club in the late eighties. He came and had one season um, with Mulhouse in France when they got promoted and scored seven goals, but they went straight back down and he moved he moved on. But uh, Eddie Krinchevich, and he also I interviewed him back when I was just starting out as a journalist in the mid-90s when he was back in Australia, and just a lovely, suave, sophisticated European man, spoke, you know, could speak, uh, just a great guy, great guy. I remember talking to him about the Mexican national team. He knew everything about football, and I, I loved the Mexicans at that time. And, uh, yeah, 
I'll go with Eddie. There you go. Left, Robbie, left field. Robbie, Robbie's getting emotional. <laughs> Garber, you better save him. Come in here. You know, it's it's very even. You could probably throw a blanket over three or four of them in terms of who had the best career in, in France. No doubt Ned Zelic was the most talented player. Farina just behind him. I'd say it's a close call between Slater and Sturjovsky, to be honest, in terms of who had the best career in in France. I think Slater made the biggest impact at any particular club. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, the fact that he's still loved at Lawn and he's a, a cult hero there. There's no doubt he had the biggest impact of any Australian player. But I think Sturjovsky perhaps edges him in terms of the best career looking at their stats. I'd say it's very close between those two. Without having watched... And then, you know, closely during that time, I'd, I'd say it's an even call between Slater and Sturjovsky. Impact, definitely Slater. Um, maybe contribution, Sturjovsky, but it's very close. I, I'd like to call it even between those two, Slater and Sturjovsky, the two wingers. Yeah, Slater's stats, not that good. But he explains to Robbie, he got that hat-trick in the trial game. And then he said he didn't score another goal, but he did He did score a couple. But he, he explained that Gervais Martel came up to him and called him an, an enfoiré. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you, you scored those three goals and then you've just been... But he also explained that it's because he changed his, his style somewhat and he was less... He was not quite, quite a, as much a, of an attacking player. But um, it's been fantastic, guys. It's been, it's been really interesting. Um, hopefully... Hopefully um, our listeners found that interesting. And listen, if, if we've got some Aussies out there, um, any aspiring young footballers, give, you know, France should definitely be on your radar. We've got a really good league out here. And, um, you know, the likes of Farina, Stojovsky, um, they set a great example and they should be advising their young players to come and learn from the great coaches out here in, in Liga. Can I just add something? Look, we may not be sending too many Aussies there at the moment. If you want to send a couple our way, we will gladly take them. Just a couple of French players who want to learn their trade away from France. We will happily naturalise them as Australian and bring them into the Socceroos. So please don't discount that idea either. Well, we've had a word to Killian. He speaks good English. (laughs) Well, listen, I'm I'm actually relying relying on Killian finishing his career in in Sydney because I've already got the the book name it's the the from from bondi to bondi my career yeah, very good know, very good master. such a good ring to it. so anyway we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed killian thank you uh very much to to my guests today david crossan robbie thompson and uh and daniel garb in particular over in sydney almost time to go to bed for you daniel um or garby sorry um but thank you it's a, it's a great pleasure having you on and uh thanks for joining us on le beau jeu we will be back next week with a special on um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, clubs in, in France. I, I don't know, Robbie may, may beg to differ. Olympique de Marseille, it's going to be epic. So join us again next week. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. On you, boys. See you later. Thank you. Good Oh, what a goal. Kylian Mbappe wraps it up.